So uh, if, if it was your first community time, that is normal. We do encourage people to talk for that long about something random. And so today's something random was about an interesting neighbor that you have. Um, so, I, you know, somebody you either work near or somebody that you live near. And um, I just have noticed that, and people tell me this is like a Minnesota thing or a Midwest thing, but we have a really unique way of using the word interesting. Have you noticed that before? Like, interesting. So somebody brings something to like a potluck and it tastes horrible. But instead of being honest about that or just avoiding the conversation altogether, we say, oh, did you bring the tuna casserole? It was interesting. And I, is that a Midwest thing, people who aren't from here? Is that an everywhere thing? Okay, yeah, so it's like a weird either Minnesota, Midwest thing where it's part of our Minnesota passive-aggressive. Some people call it the Minnesota nice. It's not real. And, and so I, I asked the question, you know, it was me, tell about an interesting neighbor that you have. So there's kind of two ways I think we use the word interesting. Interesting might mean this person is so intriguing. They have life circumstances that I'm intrigued by and I want to know them more, okay? And then there's these people are so strange that I am left bewildered by their very existence, okay? So how many of you were talking about a neighbor who fits this category that you're just so intrigued by them, they've got a really interesting life, you want to know them? Okay, four. How many of you shared about an interesting neighbor that their very existence bewilders you and it's almost to the point of being entertaining? A few more. Yes, a few more. So this, this is a fascinating thing to me. I have lived just down the street here on Adams Street. The, the, the streets here in Northeast are in order of the presidents. So uh, my street, Adams Street, that I've lived on there for six years. Some amazing people have lived on Adams Street or concurrently do because it's amazing. And on our little block, I want to suggest that it might be one of the most interesting blocks of Northeast Minneapolis. And I could tell you stories for hours about why I think it is the most interesting block of Northeast Minneapolis. Um, I'm actually moving to Randolph Street. There's a few people on Randolph Street. Anybody want to holler for that one? Okay, okay, nice, nice. That's where the Mill City Commons is, so... Everybody, yeah. Okay, so I'm moving like a block from the Mill City Commons. And whenever you're, you know, having a transition like that, you start to reminisce about the experiences that you've had in said place that you might be leaving. And so Kara, my roommate, and, and some of our other friends and roommates, we've been talking about these stories of things that have happened over the last six years. And I would say that interesting in both senses of the word interesting fit the description for this block. And I'm just going to tell you just a couple of the things. I got just a couple bullet points of why I want to suggest that. And if anybody else wants to come give me some bullet points about your block to say that it's more interesting, I would love to hear those. So here's why I think that Adam Street should be voted as the most interesting street in Northeast Minneapolis. One day, we came outside because we heard the craziest, loudest noise, and over 50 motorcycles were on our street. They were... They were covering the street, taking every inch of on-street parking. And as you could imagine, then over 50 bikers were then just on our street. I have no idea why. I still don't know. But we've got pictures to prove 50 bikes just show up. I have video footage of a spontaneous marching band that just came out of nowhere. I, I, have, like, I have reason to believe that they aren't even people who knew each other, but somebody was playing their trumpet outside, and then somebody had a drum. And they're marching up and down the block like they're in a parade in the middle of a Saturday afternoon. Totally weird. Uh, a neighbor left the neighborhood, and uh, I noticed this, these large trucks coming in and out of the alley. And what happened was is that the neighbor left over 25 antique uh, refrigerators between the 40s and, and 60s. So you know those big, huge things? 
left 25 of them behind in the garage. And so these trucks were coming to recycle, I guess recycle these old refrigerators, and it took five large trucks to take all of the huge heavy refrigerators out, and the person just left them behind. Um, next door to my house, right next door, there was a, a grow house. Um, and if you don't know what that is, um, people growing drugs in the house. And this, the, the, the police did the stakeout for the drug bust from our living room. I'm not kidding. Like, Lance, the detective, was dressed as, you know, a, a layperson or whatever you want to call it, a, a person that's not a police officer, and would show up and would be sitting in the living room, like, looking through the blinds. And when they finally did the drug bust and the huge evidence truck came and the, the plant upon plant of marijuana was coming out, over $120,000 of marijuana came out of that house. And then four other drug houses that were connected to that ring were busted on that same day. And we have reason to believe that people on the other end of the drug scene, the purchasers, also live on our block. Um, I was walking the dog one day and just saw a drug deal go down Sunday morning, friends, right before coming to worship. And uh, often in the back when we're having a, a bonfire, we as roommates just talk about what really are the effects of secondhand marijuana smoke. We're not sure. It's being tested. So... When the neighbors come over to our house, we, we invite them in, we've had a chili feed, we have national night out, people start telling stories, like the neighbors tell stories. They can't be true. Like they cannot possibly be true, these stories that people tell. And sometimes they're telling a story, these tall tales, and I think, Lord Jesus, please, this cannot be true, what this person is saying. These people are so interesting. So that's my claim that this is the most interesting block. It's been six years. It's been amazing. It is so sad to move on from this place, but I would want to say that this is the most interesting block. If someone can beat that, you talk to me. And so we've been in this conversation these last few weeks called trust issues. We've talked about our trust issues and our need to trust God. We've talked about trusting the Bible, trusting Scripture. And today I want to talk about the trust issues related to our neighbors. <laughs> For the purposes of today, I want to define the word neighbor. You can put it up on the screen here. Neighbors are the people nearby you in the spaces in which you spend most of your time. So I realize that's kind of a broad definition. But some of you spend most of your time in your workplace. Some of you spend most of your time at school or uh, in your neighborhood. And so, uh, or coffee shops, I don't know where you all spend your time. But think about the places that you spend most of your time. The people who are nearby you during that time are your neighbors. And I, I know that's broad, but I actually think that that's kind of the definition of the concept of neighbor in Scripture, is this kind of broad definition of the people who, who are around you in the places that God has put you. The people who are around you in the places God has put you. Uh, a lot of us have trust issues when it comes to our neighbors, the people that God puts around us. Um, I mean, because honestly, really, it just means other people. A lot of us have trust issues. It's hard for us to trust other people. Humans, in general, have a difficult time trusting other humans. And I think I figured out why. I think I know the reason that humans have a hard time trusting each other. Do you want me to tell you? I, if I could be so bold as to suggest what is the, the underlying reason. The reason why humans don't trust each other is because humans can't be trusted. Okay, so sometimes, I mean, every once in a while they can be trusted, but humans can't always be trusted. You can't be trusted. I can't be trusted. We can't completely trust each other. I mean, you heard the stories of the people on my block. Those people be crazy, right? And I'm crazy. You're, we're all a little bit crazy. And this is something that causes us to realize that as humans who, who cannot act perfectly, who cannot relate perfectly, we can't be fully trusted 
Some of us would say we can't often be trusted and other people can't often be trusted. And so a natural question that might come up in this conversation here, trust issues in regards to our neighbors, would be the question, can we trust our neighbors? And I actually think the best way to answer this question is maybe. Maybe. Often no, (laughs) but maybe. But I have some deeper questions I think we could ask today. Because we could end there and just kind of say, yeah, maybe you can sometimes trust people, I don't know. But I actually think there's some deeper questions for us to ask. How about what would it mean for us to trust others, to trust neighbors, even when we aren't sure if they're trustworthy? What would it mean for us to extend trust to people even when we aren't sure if they're trustworthy? What would it mean for us to be trustworthy neighbors, to be people who are trying to be trustworthy in our interactions with other people that we may know or may not know yet? And I have to say that as I was preparing for this conversation today and really trying to to look at what this story says to us about how we relate with our neighbors, I have to admit that I found it extremely challenging. So I'm just going to put that out there before I even go any further, that I felt that this was challenging as I was thinking about what it means for us to be Jesus followers, to be gospel people or good news people, I often say, to be people who are wanting to participate with the kingdom of God that Jesus says is coming and is in our midst. It's right around us. I think to be Jesus' followers in this area, it might require something of us that we're not ready to offer. So, it might mean that we need to offer undeserved trust to our neighbors. We must consider, I think, what it means to be people who follow Jesus as we wrestle with these trust issues that we might have with our neighbors and that we might have with the humans that God's put around us in all of our everyday spaces. So when we think about this story, the, the, the story of God, the story that God has been telling through time, through scripture, and that we continue to live into, this big story of God, the, the big God story that we always say in Mighty Mills, uh, the, this concept of neighbor is brought up constantly. Throughout the Old Testament, people, the people of God are given this mandate that they were going to be blessed by God so that they would be a blessing to all people. They are called very specifically with specific instructions to care for other people. There's actually specific groups of people that God says are the most important to care for. Specifically, it would be foreigners, people who find themselves away from home, those who are poor and are in need materially, those who are widows and orphans, These groups of people are brought up constantly. And you see God's people wrestle with this mandate. You see God's people wrestle with this call on their life to be people who represent God in this way. Because they constantly want to choose to be selfish instead of being selfless. There's a constant battle that goes on inside of them. A battle that I think we wrestle with as well. God is constantly calling them towards loving the stranger. Loving those in their midst wherever they find themselves. And as we go along in the story, we get to Jesus, who says some pretty important things about neighbors, and I think some of this might be familiar to some of you, but Jesus talks about the two greatest commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And when he says this, this man asks him, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And it's so interesting, because instead of giving a definition like I just did, Jesus tells a story, right? He did that all the time. He's always telling stories instead of just answering the question. And so he tells the story, one that many of us have talked about before. Instead of giving the definition, he says, there's this man who is beaten and he's laying on the side of the road and there is a, he needs help. Someone needs to help him. And as he's laying there, the only person who would stop to help him is someone who's supposed to be his enemy. 
uh, a Samaritan person. Two other people walked by, people who should have been his friends, who should have known that he was their neighbor by the definition, but instead they walked by and the only person that helped him was the last person that should have. The man goes out of his way to help him. He pays for his care and he makes sure that he's taken care of. And if that man who was on the side of the road were not hurt or injured, there's reason to believe that the man who helped him would think that this is an enemy, this person's actually a threat to me because they were at odds in that kind of way. But putting all of that aside, the man doesn't seem concerned about getting into a vulnerable position with somebody who could be considered an enemy. And so then Jesus, finishing the story, he says to the people listening, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers and was beaten? And the man who asked the question said, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And I think in, in this commandment, the two great commandments that Jesus gives and then this story, we see Jesus, I, I think, kind of taking a pretty radical position on the concept of neighbor. Uh, we're going to put this slide up here. There's three things that I think is so clear from the way that Jesus talks about neighbor. The first thing would be you have to value your neighbor as much as you value yourself. And this is really difficult for us in a lot of ways. Jesus seems to be saying, go out of your way to help a neighbor in need, even if that is a person who might otherwise want to harm you or be a threat to you, and be willing to let them help you. Because in the story, the person on the side of the road would be who the hearers would have identified themselves with. And then third, it will cost you something to be a good neighbor, specifically time or money, because in the story, those are the two commodities that were given up for the sake of the neighbor. But I want to suggest that this radical position on what it means to be a good neighbor that is taken by Jesus as he tells this story is something that has been just as radical throughout the whole story of God. Jesus is helping it come to, li- to, to, come to life and like kind of come alive as he's telling this powerful kind of storytelling. But I want us to look at a passage actually today from the Old Testament that I think captures some of what it means to work through the trust issues that we have with people in our lives and the way that God wants to lead us through those interactions. And so I want to turn to Jeremiah 29. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it. We'll have it up here on the screen as well. And I'm going to look at verse 4 through 14. Let me give you just a little bit of context. Jeremiah is a prophet. And he's writing to God's people during a very intense time for them. They are in exile. They are displaced people. They are under the authority of a group called the Babylonians. Um, they are not happy about being in that place. In fact, this is, this is very difficult for them. They hated Babylon. They hated the fact that they had very little authority, very little say in what happened in that culture. They were, in many ways, an oppressed people group. They were displaced and they had a plan. And the plan was isolate ourselves and try to survive. And if you're imagining what it might have been like for them, you wouldn't blame them for that. And in the midst of that, God says something to them through Jeremiah, and I want to read what he says. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. 
Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. As some of you hear this passage read out loud, I bet some of you hear a verse that's been maybe like a favorite verse to you, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And you might have gotten like many cards at graduation from high school that had Jeremiah 29, 11 in it, right? You know that Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You Will Go, and then you open it up and there's a little note to you, Jeremiah 29, 11 at the bottom. You know what I'm talking about, that book? And I don't know why people think that if you're about to venture out into the unknown world as a, you know, an 18-year-old who knows nothing, that this like pastel book with the swirly things on it by Dr. Seuss is going to be helpful. I have no idea. That's just the weirdest thing to me. That's, sorry, that's just like an aside. But then someone writes Jeremiah 29, 11 in there because it's supposed to be like the graduation verse. Like God's got plans for you. It says so, this, this prophet you know, kind of missing the rest of the context around what's happening here in Jeremiah. And so I actually don't think it has that much to do with what happens to you after you graduate. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying don't put it on the card. That's fine. I'm just saying I think this is more about how God wants to meet people in the midst of some of the most difficult circumstances of their life. And sure, starting college might be a really difficult circumstance, but it also means you're one of the 1% in the world that gets to go to college. So there's a whole other thing going on there. So I don't actually think it's about graduation from college. I want to look at this passage. There's three different things I think actually really help us with this con concept of whether or not we can really trust our neighbors. The first, I think, is this. God is asking us to engage in the community in which God placed us. In verse 5 and 6, this idea of build homes, uh, plant gardens, get married, start families. This idea of getting rooted in a place is so clear. You see this, this just being so clear here. And uh, it's not really merely about procreation, this idea of having kids. You can imagine that if you're in a really tough spot, the people of God at that point might be hearing this and thinking, why would we bring more children into this world that is so difficult for us? And sometimes people might ask that question about today. But I don't think it's merely about procreation. What I think God is saying here pretty broadly is, even though hard things are happening, do what you can to contribute to the community. Get involved. Get engaged with what's going on. And as we enter our everyday spaces, I think God has that same call on our lives. Get involved. But there was a temptation that the people had when they heard these words from Jeremiah, and that was to isolate and to, to try to shrink back. And I think sometimes we have that same temptation to isolate ourselves and to try to shrink back. And I think our trust issues have a lot to do with that. We don't want to get hurt. Perhaps in some ways we don't want to give our time to others because some of us avoid the kind of the, the, the getting in the back of the fence and you're talking to your neighbors over the fence because 
that's going to be a sacrifice of time to engage with these people. What if they are strangely chatty and we're stuck there for days talking to these people? What if they aren't chatty and we're stuck there with awkward silence? What if I can't get over my own awkwardness? And there's all these fears that we have. But here's the thing. Everybody's awkward, right? Everybody is weird. If they're not yet, you don't know them that well yet. That's all. There's no such thing as normal. But other times I think we're afraid of something that, that is very common for us to have fear around, and that is things that are different than us, people that are different than us. If we're honest, that difference often scares us because it's a sense of unknown. Difference is one of the things that causes us to have trust issues with other people. We don't understand people who are different than us, and we have a hard time trusting what we don't understand. And I've said this before, and it's hard for us to believe all the time, but diversity is not a curse. Diversity is a gift from God. It's something that God designed us for. And so overcoming those fears is really important for us to pursue. Inviting God to help us overcome those fears of people who are different than us. You can imagine that God's people in the midst of the Babylonian Empire had some reasons to fear the people who were different than them. They had some reasons to be a sense of trepidation when it came to the other. But God is clearly telling them to engage, to overcome their fears, to get involved in their city, to get involved with what is happening already, that the idea that God might already be doing something even in the midst of their exile. So it would be good for us to ask these questions. What are we afraid of? What are some of the fears we need to confront with God's help in our lives? For some of us, do we have to be real that we have a deep fear of being inconvenienced? of having our schedule thrown off and our plans thrown off. I can resonate with that. We don't have to meet every need that we see. We don't have to stop by the side of every road, but we do need to do what God is inviting us to do. And I wonder if we're even asking for Jesus' leadership in that area of our lives so that we would even know the difference between an invitation to come alongside and one in which God is saying, it's okay, I'm going to take care of these things in other ways. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is when we engage our goal is to seek shalom. This concept of shalom, you see it in verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The word peace there would be translated in Hebrew as shalom. This is a very deep concept throughout Scripture, the sense of peace or shalom. It's connected then to the word prosper that's used there in that verse. They were sent, these, these people were put in, into Babylon, and in many ways, because they were in exile, the idea was that the Babylonian Empire would influence them to change. In fact, people's names were changed and all these awful things, trying to get them to be controlled by the Babylonian Empire. But here God is saying, actually, I have you there to be an influence yourself instead of merely to be influenced. God's purpose, purposes for them in the midst of this difficult time is to be people who seek peace, or shalom. And I want to put a definition of shalom on the screen because this is actually this very rich concept that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity. There's that word from the verse. Perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord. Shalom comes from the root verb meaning to, complete, to be complete, perfect, and full. And when you read that definition, it makes so much sense that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, doesn't it? 
if the city prospers, Jeremiah says, God wants them to know if the city prospers, then you too will prosper. And when Jeremiah is saying that, he doesn't mean you individually. He means you all. We, we will prosper if the city prospers. And I think that that is something that's difficult for us to trust God for. We tend to follow that same pattern and isolate, especially when it gets hard. Because the brokenness in this world causes us to want to do that. And we tend to divide instead of building community. But I would say that we can see here that God calls us to community and being influencers, not isolating. But I think this brings us then to that difficult reality, doesn't it, of the fact that other humans can't always be trusted, can't often be trusted. Here's where it gets challenging, doesn't it? And I want to suggest that in order to seek this concept of shalom, the way that God is speaking to the people here, we have to offer our trust even in situations where we don't know if we can trust others. I realize that that's a really challenging thing to say. We must offer our trust even in situations where we don't know if we can trust others. And I want to give a disclaimer. I've given this disclaimer before. I am never, not now, or ever advocating for people to stay in situations or relationships where they're constantly being hurt or abused uh, repeatedly. People need to get out of those situations. There is help for that. And in general, I'm, I'm, ta- I'm not saying to be unwise. Don't misunderstand me here. But how can we seek shalom, completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, etc.? How can we seek that if we don't extend trust to our neighbors? It just, I don't see how it can work. How does isolating do that? It can't. I don't see how it's possible. It's common kind of in our cultures today to say things like, I will mind my own business, and if they mind their own business, then we're all just going to get along. That's not real. That is false. That is false. Our destinies are intertwined with our neighbors, whether that's what we want to acknowledge or admit or not. I think that's something that the scripture tells us. What happens to the people who live near me and work near me impacts me. What happens to the least of these in our city should matter to us because God designed us to live communally and to see the world and all the people in the world as people who are bearing the image of the God that we worship. So it matters. It needs to matter, and it does matter. We must extend trust to our neighbors if we want to seek shalom. You can't separate those two things. And I get that this can be hard, and I, I, I know that we need to be cautious I'm not advocating that you leave your front door unlocked or something or like putting your valuables on the seat in your car. Like, that's just dumb. Don't do that. That's not what I'm advocating. I'm talking about vulnerability. I'm talking about trusting and trying to trust others and praying that the trust that you extend to other people, people you don't know if, you're, if, you're, if they're trustworthy at all, but praying that the trust that you extend will be something that produces shalom. Whether they're people who know God or follow God or want to have anything to do with Jesus or not, I think that this shalom can come from our ability to extend trust, even when it's difficult. And I feel like I experienced one of the most challenging experiences in regards to trusting your neighbor in the last few weeks that I've ever had in my entire life. And I don't know why this happens to me. I don't know if some of you are people who do public speaking regularly, but for whatever reason, when you know there's something you're going to talk about, some weird thing happens in that area of your life right beforehand. So that's what happened. Probably the the deepest uh, testing of my ability to trust my neighbor happened a few weeks ago. Uh, I'll give you the very short version. It was an interesting experience. 
and I mean interesting on the not great side, that's like the I hope this never happens again side of things. So uh, how many of you have gone to a different place in the country and you stayed in an Airbnb or a vacation rental by owner, VRBO? So some of you have. I've stayed in Airbnb places all over the country and I've had a really good experience. And so right now I'm in between, like I described, these two different houses. I'm finishing up one space I'm living in and I'm going to move into another one. So you've probably been in situations like that before where there's like an in-between time. So I thought, well, I've had a good time staying in other people's homes in other cities, so why don't I open up this home on the Airbnb where basically what it is is an online way for you to let people stay in your place for a small fee, okay? So I put that online, and this woman said she'd like to rent. I thought that sounded great. Checked her out. Her uh, background check, everything was good. And uh, what happened was is instead of her moving in, she let some of her friends move in. So you might see where this is going. Uh, she didn't tell me she was going to have her friends move in. I didn't know these friends. And so basically, that's not, that's not Airbnb policy. So if you're looking into it, it's called being a third-party renter, and you can't do that. And so basically what happened was is that uh, even what was even worse in the situation is that this woman had taken money from these other people. So she was making money off of it, and it was this whole thing. And so basically when I confronted the situation and just said, oh, yeah, we can't actually do that. You're going to have to have people move out by the end of the week, which I thought was reasonable. Um, things got crazy. Remember earlier? People being crazy. People be crazy. So things got a little weird, and uh, basically the folks who were living in my house, um, they didn't want to leave. They wanted their money back. I didn't have their money. This other person who wasn't even in the state had their money. And so they're in this weird situation, and all of a sudden we are, these, these strangers living in my house and me, my, my neighbors, are trying to figure out if we can trust each other. <laughs> it was the beginning of this, like, can we possibly trust? Who can trust who? Can we trust this other woman? And the people living in my house, they needed a place to stay. And understandably, they wanted their money back. And so we began the really hard process of trying to figure out if we could trust each other. And as far as the law suggests, they had renter's rights to stay there until this mess was sorted out. And I'm going to admit that it was hard... <laughs> to trust these folks, I didn't know them at all. But in that moment, in this experience, as difficult as it was, I knew that I had two choices. I had the choice to distrust them and to try to put up as many defenses as possible and try to, to figure out what my rights are and all these things, or to try to extend trust to these people that I don't know and hope that that is what it looks like to seek shalom. I knew that's the only options that I had. And it was difficult, but I realized that some sort of like threats or aggression or lies or bribes or something, I don't know what I could have done, none of that was going to bring shalom. That was just going to bring more agitation and discord, which is the opposite of shalom. And it took a week, not only a week, but we were able to get to the point where the, the folks staying in my house and myself were able to trust each other enough that shalom was produced. And they moved out. And they came here to our worship service. They got to know some people from Mill City. And now there are friendships that are starting between these three neighbors that you never would have even imagined. But the truth is, is that in that moment, I had no idea, no way of knowing if these folks were trustworthy. They might not have been, actually. I don't know. But now this friendship came from that. Even though we had both been hurt by this other person that turns out we couldn't trust and we didn't know. And we both had money taken from us and the whole thing. It was a hor horrible thing. But I tell you this story, hopefully, to help you see what it looks like for me to try, what it looked like for me to try to struggle through whether or not I could actually extend that trust. 
And in this story, I'm glad that I did, but I don't know, if it would have turned out differently, maybe I wouldn't be saying that right now. But I knew that there was only these two choices, aggression or peace. There was uh, isolating and protecting, or there was engaging and seeking peace. And I'm glad that I chose to seek shalom, and man, I'm glad that, I'm, that they chose to do that as well. We have to be willing to seek shalom, to seek that peace. I think there's one final thing this passage teaches us about our attempt to offer trust, even though we don't know if people are trustworthy, and that is we have to trust God if we're going to offer trust to our neighbors. This is back to the graduation verse, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And like I said, I think this is more about trusting God in the midst of difficult circumstances than hoping you get into the college of your dreams or hoping you pick a major where you can actually pay back your loans. I don't know. You're going to have to read other literature for that. I don't think Jeremiah is actually giving you advice on that end. But if we're going to trust our neighbors, if we're going to offer trust to people in order to seek shalom, I think it means we're going to have to trust God at a deeper level than we would otherwise. We can't trust that everything that happens to us will be good. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Some things will be difficult. We're going to be taken advantage of at times. We are going to experience harm. Also, we are going to mess up and we are going to harm other people, whether we mean to or not. But we have to trust that God is doing something bigger. That ultimately, there is a promise of prospering and hope and a future in God's promises. And we might say right now, and I bet some of you would say this, well, actually, I feel like there's a lot more harm going on right now than any prospering or whatever this is. And I get that. I think that's how I felt during this whole mess with my house. It was horrible. But do you think that Jesus might have felt that same way? Do you think that Jesus, during his time on earth, might have felt like he was extending trust but actually receiving harm? He extended trust to other people and they tried to stone him. He was constantly having these leaders trying to trick him and trap him. He, he extended trust to Judas like a brother and he betrayed him. He extended trust to his disciples and when they got scared, they, they ran away and left him alone. And his disciples were constantly just talking about who was better than the other person and completely missing the point. And he's extending this trust to them. And in the end, he was killed by the very people who he was coming to save. But we know that Jesus always had this bigger story in mind, didn't he? He trusted the Father that the plans weren't ultimately about harm, even though he was experiencing harm and harm was coming his way. The plans were about saving the world, about all of God's children being able to prosper because of the kingdom that Jesus was unlocking through his death and resurrection. Because of the salvation that he was offering to anyone who would choose to follow him, Jesus had to have that big story in mind and had to promise, have those promises in mind that the future is one in which there is hope and promise and prosperity and all these things. Is In the future, the end of the story is shalom, God's shalom. We have to trust God if we're going to offer trust to our neighbors. And this is because God can be trusted even though humans can't even though we can't be trusted. We have to be willing to keep that bigger story in view. God wants to give us a hope and a future, not, not you and me, not individualistically. God wants to give us, the family of God, a future, 
of hope and, and shalom. So, as I wrap up today, I'm going to have the band come back up. I don't expect anybody to just, like, get over their trust issues that they have with other people. Um, not saying that at all. Some of us are trust issues with others in our lives, whether it be people we live with, work with, our family, friends, I don't know. Some of those issues are so deep, it'd be like unlocking a vault, wouldn't it? Some of us need counseling to do that. I'm not kidding, actually, about that. We've got a really awesome list on our website. That might be something that you need to do. But I have something really simple that I want to invite everybody to do. We, we handed these out, and if you didn't get one, you can grab one uh, on the way out. And this, this neighborhood crawl, did you guys get this? It's a play on words with the idea of a pub crawl. I'm not asking everybody to go on a pub crawl from the stage. I'm asking you to go on a neighborhood crawl. And these are just eight really simple things. Sometimes they seem so simple that they might seem silly, but the reality is, is that it's easy to write these things down. It was easy for me to have my friend Steve illustrate this cute picture for you, but the reality is, is that these things can be really hard. They can be really challenging. They can be things that cause uh, a need for bravery and courage and confidence that comes from God. They seem simple, but I want to encourage you to just try it, just to go on this neighborhood crawl. I'm going to be going on the neighborhood crawl in my new neighborhood, so I want to invite you to do that with me. Put this on the fridge, and as you go, you can just put a little check by and put the names of the people you meet. You could do this in your neighborhood as far as where you live. You could do this in your workplace. There's a little water cooler on there. But the idea is whether or not we can take these simple steps of trust. Simple steps that help us begin to extend trust to people that we don't know if we can trust them. It's risky. But I got to say that over those six years of the trust that we've extended to the people who live near us in Adam Street, some crazy things have happened. We've experienced vulnerability with people. We've been with them for the worst moments of their life, the best moments of their life, everything in between. I've seen people come to trust Jesus as their Savior. I've st stood on the corner of my block and had people profess their trust in Jesus. I'm, crazy things have happened in such a short amount of time. But it started with just getting someone's name <laughs> and then their story and so on. So as I take the step to try to figure out how to do that in my new neighborhood, would you join me in that and just uh, step into that? It's going to mean for a lot of us that we need some bravery. And I asked the worship team to sing a song that's just been a really meaningful one to me over the, this last six months or so about what it means to receive bravery from a God who promises to give it to us. So as they sing this, would you just reflect on what it means to invite God into, yeah, some simple steps, but ones that often feel daunting. Ask God to give you the courage, the, the bravery to be able to trust other people, even if you don't know if you can trust them. And trust that that is what it means to seek shalom. Can I send you out with a blessing this morning? May you realize that God's love will never run out. That there's always enough for you and your neighbors where you live, where you work. May God fill you with courage and bravery to extend trust to those who might not have any idea what it's like to be trusted. May you see that you are where you live, where you work, where you spend your time. You are there on purpose because God's love has put you there for reasons that you might not even understand and may you have the courage to follow God's leadership in those everyday spaces. I pray this over you in Jesus' name. Amen.